0: So this strange, there's this is weird, I don't know, it's like the we introduce a deception into the money, which will start to lie about the money or how it works. Again, maybe not even intentionally. Maybe we actually bought into this lie ourselves. Maybe even Keynes believed what he was espousing. But it leads to um, broader deception, right? You have to start lying to people about the nature of hard money and the nature of nominal wages, et cetera. So it, it's a very interesting line right there's there's like this economic deception but it it leads to political deception and it leads to now again perhaps even self-deception so it's, it's just a strange dynamic hey everybody welcome to the what is money show i am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the collection of money So if you're looking to start uh, a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values, which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, Again, that's Wolf W O L
1: F N Y C dot com. I recently had a debate. I met this guy. He's twenty nine, and he has an aerospace engineering degree, and works in the aerospace industry. He was so smart. You know, when you—I don't know if you have this—but like when I move through the world, not like I have my Bitcoin life. Which is mostly solitary, and then I move through Space and I try drop hints in almost every conversation about how I feel about the economic system and about Bitcoin. But I don't, I don't steer the conversation there. I just drop hints when it's when it's relevant, and if they pick up on it, then I'm excited and we can go from there.
0: I just have to say something about this real quick. I, yeah, when you first get into Bitcoin, I think. You, you have your light bulb moment or your epiphany or your orange pill, whatever you want to call it. And I think a lot of people feel this impulse to want to share it, right? Like tell everyone, oh my God. Ugh. And then over time, you kind of realize that most people are not ready for the Bitcoin message. You know, mm-hmm. Everyone gets it at the price they deserve, or you got to do the proof of work to understand it, whatever you want to say about it. You can't just... Rattle off a trope and then like incept the idea of Bitcoin into someone's mind. So, for me and many others have shared similar experiences, over time you kind of back off, right? You stop trying to evangelize to those that may not be ready to listen. But what I've gotten into the habit of doing is just rattling off things. Like someone will say, Oh, the prices of the price of steak has gone up so much in the past three years. And I'll just drop this little nugget and just let it hang, let it linger without explaining it. And I'll say something like, oh, well, that's what happens when you centrally counterfeit trillions of dollars. And they just look at me funny. <laughs> I find that to be very entertaining. And hopefully just planting little seeds as I go.
1: Kind of like Johnny Appleseed with Bitcoin. Anyways, I just want to do that. Please continue. <laughs> I, I do exactly the same. I, I was on a spaces a couple months ago and it was like, um, the spaces of people who had just discovered Bitcoin—that was like the theme of it. <laughs> and one person was asking, "How do you, exp- how do you sell Bitcoin to your friends?" And I, and I, I would recall A- Andreas was has been asked that same question, and he said, "You don't. Mm-hmm. You just don't." I think when people like sense that you're selling, they just turn off. Yes.
0: Everyone likes to buy into things but they don't like to be sold to
1: (laughs) yeah if you if you're hearing this and you are recent if you're got a head full of steam and you're really excited about bitcoin you it's not your responsibility to convince your friends and loved ones you don't have to get them onto the ark it's it's not going to help that you don't have to sell them on it you can talk about it i'm not saying i'm not trying to embargo discussion yeah but you don't have to sell anybody. It's just not necessary. There's also so, this, when I met this. Sorry, go ahead. All right, let me see you what know, I was gonna, saying before you continue. Uh, there's
0: also this element of striking when the iron is hot, like when Bitcoin's in a bull market or when someone's getting censored in their bank or whatever. Like they're dealing with pain in the legacy financial system. I think those are like these windows of opportunity to sort of insert more of the Bitcoin message.
1: Another window of opportunity is if you are articulate enough about what's currently happening with our debt spiral and why the government increasingly running deficits is going to lead to greater issuance of treasuries and why greater issuance of treasuries is going to lead to a spike in yields and why a spike in yields is going to lead to yield curve control, which is money printing. If somehow you can explain that to people which is hard to do because usually people aren't interested. But if you can, this always happens to me. Someone will say, "So what's the answer?" They'll ask you. They'll just mm-hmm. say, "Give me an answer." Mm-hmm. And that's when I say, "Well, for me it's Bitcoin, for you it might be something else that that is scarce. But for me the only thing I can make sense of is Bitcoin." And they'll usually usually now and I do have these conversations pretty often. They know what I'm talking about enough and and I and I'm the more I'm getting the more I have this conversation the more I'm realizing people have thought about it and know more than I thought mm-hmm. and bring it back to the anecdote I was telling you this aerospace guy when I sort of like dropped the hints that that's what I'd be into talking about if you're into it he was like right there he you knew everything I was talking about want to talk about proof of work like had done a lot of research and was smart and it was a really fun conversation that went on for several hours. We were at a lake with family. And he had a challenge that he couldn't stop presenting to me over and over again. And I didn't, I I never made any headway with this. You can't make headway with someone on something like this in the span of like an hour or two or an afternoon. You just can't. But the theme that he came back to again and again was if the money itself is valuable and increases in valuable value, doesn't that get in the way of people making productive investments? He, he would not let go of that. He clearly believed that deep down that, that it was his duty to society to make society productive, that he would actually be undermining all of civilization. If he held a money that held value, and that he was required like, by the social contract to hold a depreciating currency so that he would have a gun to his head, so that he would make investments in productive ventures. I couldn't talk him out of it. And if
0: you play that all the way out, again, intuition will just tell you it's bullshit, right? So in this world where people have access to sound savings, Bitcoin gold, in his view, they will just hoard money, right? Hold savings, hold money at the exclusion of everything else. You don't want to consume anything else. No food, no houses, no cars, nothing. So you'd end up in this world where everyone is hoarding money, but the money's purchasing power would go to zero because again, there's it's an anti-value, right? It's just a reflection of the wealth, the real wealth, the real goods and services that are available in the economy. So I mean, his view, which is Keynesian-influenced, obviously, is almost self-refuting. It's like people wouldn't just save to the point of there being no goods and services in the marketplace, because then the savings would be worth less. Yeah.
1: That's a really good point. Also, it assumes that... It assumes that, the, that society is productive... Because people buy stocks, not because people right. buy the buy the consumables. Exactly. And that is the reason why society is productive is not because people buy stocks. So this was like look at what's where did this myth come from that he really felt like it was his duty? Where does and and things that he said in conversation Made me realize it came from his reading, his thinking, and from a very influential course he took in college. And I think that people are being taught this: that this is this is the central myth of the central bank that we are required to have this currency that loses value. That the two percent—that's what the two percent target is—or the three percent target—is that this is what we should all have. And our parents grew up accepting this myth tacitly or not. You know, they grew up. They grew up um, with their homes increasing in value and their mortgages becoming easier to pay off the older they got. So this was the myth that made the boomers rich. The boomers have, what, 35 trillion in, in assets now. It's because of this myth. That's why they have it. So that's what gave every middle-class person that comes from a middle-class background or upper, upper middle class, that's what gave them their wealth. And then if you're super wealthy, it's also what gave you wealth, but you're probably aware of it. Um, <laughs> initially I had seven myths for this second half and it, it, the outline was going to get way out of hand and I forgot to take the extra ones out of this. I, I, I wanted to recap them here. I, just for fun. I'm going to tell you what was on the menu that I took off because it, we can't handle it. So again, cause this was probably like 40 minutes ago, the, the Britain's return to gold at 486 caused the death of gold standard Two, that laissez-faire capitalism was to blame for the great depression. Three, that a gold shortage caused the depression. Four, that German war reparations caused their hyperinflation. That well, actually we might address that one later. I think I did I did address that one. That I hear that in conversation a lot. Well, you right oh, that's why the the you know, I hear that as like a simple way people sum up what happened in Germany in the twenties. Well, they had to pay the war debt, and then that's why their currency hyperinflated. That's not like necessarily a myth well it is it's a myth but it's like the way a semi-educated person can talk about the hyperinflation and then also by default that's why hitler came to power and it's and and so conveniently the narrative across time has been gold led to hyperinflation and hitler coming to power Mm -hmm. and that's linked to that germany couldn't pay their war reparations but you know this is like I think I handled this in a cursory way in, in, later on because it's 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 too ginormous for what we're we have enough to talk about. Um, that also German reparations hampered the financial recovery. I, I I just talked about this just now. This is number five that war reparations got in the way of financial recovery and that that led directly to Hitler. Uh, six more about Hitler. <laughs> um, seven and eight kind of blew my mind and i and i i don't know enough honestly to really handle these but this is this is i think what i think also by the way i don't know that i'm representing paley's view but here's what i think Pali believes and i'm i'm partially quoting that the level of the money in the system is the chief determinant of price it is not that it's the use of credit has more to do with it than the amount of money and I'll, I'll just stop there. That I think is kind of obvious, but maybe we'll cover it in the course of this conversation in other ways. And, and the last a one. Subtlety there, too, that technically,
0: in many um, lexicons, let's say, the amount of credit counts as part of the money supply, right? So an expansion of credit is effectively an expansion of the money supply.
1: Oh right, right, because our 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 M2 for example, checking and savings deposits, they are credit. They are they are they're all credit. Right. Okay. Um Robert, I wanted to throw this to you. This is myth number 8. And this is probably the one time we'll bring this up unless it works its way back organically. But Pali makes one statement, which is that Non-monetary events cause credit inflation. That is a sentence from the book. Mm-hmm. So, and 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 Pali takes a hatchet to um, the quantity theory of money and mm-hmm. kind of makes fun of people who are quantity quantity theorists that like somehow the quantity alone determines the price level. And I mean, at a very simple level, it is you you can imagine. You can understand what he's saying. If the central bank printed $70 trillion and put it in their bank account and never spent it, then yeah, more money exists and it wouldn't affect prices. Mm -hmm. So if reservation demand for cash is at a divinity and no one wants to spend it and people just want cash balances, then yeah, monetary inflation or quantity theory falls apart. Mm -hmm. Pau point is that non-monetary events cause credit inflation. And when I was trying to think about how to frame this, I thought about this is something that you wrote about that you brought my attention, you brought to my attention, which was the mega political variables from sovereign individual. Mm-hmm. That there are forces greater than politics which shape the course of human institutions. And that they are topology, climate, disease, and technology. Mm-hmm. That those four things are so powerful that they're more powerful than any type of government attempt to, to create a type of government, that they shape our history, and that they that they are essentially non-political variables, but they become political. And in that sense, I think Paul is saying these non-monetary events cause credit inflation that he sees the, the breaking of the gold standard as fundamentally an accident of history that this world war came about right at the time of the second industrial revolution and war became a, a, a capital intensive process that led to inflation of the money supply. It was like an accident outside of the monetary system. So I just wanted you to ruminate on that
0: Yeah. I mean, my view would be, so in general, prices are determined by supply and demand, right? How much is available and then how much demand is registered on what is available. And by definition, anything that has a price is scarce, right? There is more demand for the thing than there is supply of the thing. Hence the reason people are bidding for it in a competitive marketplace, and giving rise to a price. Mm -hmm. And so if you're saying that supply and demand are non-monetary events, which I would, yeah, they are, right? You don't, you could have demand and supply of things absent any monetary system. Mm -hmm. I would agree. um, But obviously when you inject new monetary units, you're re-denominating the expression of that price in monetary terms. So you have more presumably more dollars chasing the same amount of goods right so the price can change due to monetary events um but that doesn't mean beneath that is the reality of supply and demand so I I guess I agree but then monetary events can also cause credit inflation right because if you're if you're for instance if you're debasing the currency you're incentivizing people to borrow, the stronger dollars and pay back the weaker dollars over time Mm -hmm. there's incentive to accumulate debt in a fiat paradigm that does not exist in a sound money paradigm
1: well you know you you and i were talking about this before 2020 and so you and i see what happened during covid as an acceleration of forces already at play Mm -hmm. i think if you're the average person you see, COVID as when this all happened, when it, everything was fine, and then COVID happened, and then suddenly the, the amount of money in the, in the economy went went way up. Yeah, and I think there's also validity to that view. You know, there, all the money being printed was essentially going into these inflation sinks, which were bonds, sovereign, you know, sovereign debt. The savings in sovereign debt was soaking up all the inflation. Yeah, and then the non-monetary event of COVID came along. And forced all that new money into the supply and demand curve. Mm-hmm. So, I would say, and maybe a a, a, um, a corollary to his statement about non-monetary events causing credit inflation is that um, non-monetary event. But but you can't have an inflation without a corresponding. Monetary event, like it may be brought about by a non-monetary event, but monetary events are required preceding or afterwards.
0: Yes, in the current paradigm, I would say. But like, if we're on a Bitcoin standard, probably not as much, if at all. Would you have this monetary? You could still have credit expansion
1: on a Bitcoin standard, right? As we've talked about, you know. Well, it's like it's it's so simple. I mean, it's. It, it's it's so simple. The the government on a Bitcoin standard, if you have a responsible central bank or a responsible government that understands how Bitcoin works, then they will have a, a BRA, a Bitcoin revaluation account. They'll have excess Bitcoin and savings. And that excess Bitcoin and savings will give them leeway to step in in a crisis. They can revalue their account, As long as their savings are excess, then you can be a lender of last resort to a point, not to infinity. So any institution that has a positive reserve over and above their expenses will be able to function as a net creditor when people need it. And all they need for that is for Bitcoin to increase in value. They buy it at the market price, then productivity increases, society gets wealthier, the value of Bitcoin increases at, say, 3%. And if they can manage to run a deficit for 27 years, then they've doubled their savings because that's the doubling time for 3%. And now they're one hundred 110% funded and they can step in in a crisis. So like that to me is a pretty simple answer to how you can still have a lender of last resort. Big
0: question for um, me, whether or not they would actually do that though, because that is not, it, when you're actually functioning in that environment, in a full reserve environment, let's say, as a lender of last resort, you're not. It's going to be much harder to generate profits for your shareholders as a central bank. Right, you're you're actually then doing the opposite. Right, you might be incurring losses for your shareholders on behalf of society or the population to step in as the lender of last resort. Um, not to say that it's impossible. You could still make good loans and and be a lender of last resort, but. In the fractional reserve paradigm, it's like, oh yeah, just print the money and dole it out because there's you're not incurring loss, right? You're actually generating edge revenues and there's the new money you're creating, you don't bear the cost of that. The, actually, the borrowers ultimately bear the cost of that. So I don't know how much of an incentive there would be internal to the central bank to function as a lender of last resort in a sound money paradigm. That's an open question for me.
1: Yeah. I also don't think that there's yield to be offered in a sound money paradigm. I mean, in a sound, on a Bitcoin standard, there is no, all yield is zero sum.
0: Yeah.
1: So if you're getting yield from somewhere, it must be taken from someone else. Right. The only slight exception to that is fees, is transaction fees, yeah. which still adhere to that rule, but that is the closest thing to a yield which will exist. But minus that, yield is zero sum. And so you can't, you can't gain unless someone else loses, and that makes the offering of yield a lot harder unless society gets wealthier and you have savings, then you can step in if you want. but and and my my statement about having savings actually referred less to the central bank and more to the government itself. Mm-hmm. If the government had positive savings, and maybe there won't be central banks. Maybe they just won't exist on a Bitcoin standard because there's they have less to do and they work less well, but if a government had savings in, in Bitcoin, then um, they can step in in a crisis. And That to me is like the, the thing that most people ask is like the biggest barrier when they start to contemplate a Bitcoin standard is, well, what'll happen when? Mm-hmm. And my answer is, well, first of all, fiat currencies will still exist. So they'll just print the currency that they have, they've maintained. And then number two, if they have Bitcoin savings, they can use that.
0: Yeah. So then the government's functioning as like an insurance provider in a way right? If there's economic recession, they'll take some of these, uh, savings they've accumulated through taxation or, well, really just taxation in this case. And they would dole it back out to members, uh, of society or, or market actors to try and, you know, quote unquote, stimulate the economy. But again, I just don't know Again, I don't I don't think the incentives are there for governments to do that really in the sound money world. Because you're just not unless you're assuming the government actually has your
1: best interest in mind, which I think history contradicts pretty fairly. Well, too big of a question for me to contemplate. Yeah. It's a, and it's a big one. But if a government is functioning as a basically on a client services model, mm-hmm. which is which is essentially part of the sovereign individual argument then um i mean you look at how sailor sailor talks about his savings the way he looked at he had when he started his whole bitcoin journey i think he had 500 billion in cash and he looked at as 500 he looked billion. at as by oh, at five hundred million, five hundred million. 500 million and he's like that's how much i have to continue to provide software services for my clients for x number of years if the business isn't profitable or if we lose or if there's a depression or if there's a recession right. so that is the central tenet of a, of a of a of a service provider so if a government wants to be a service provider i think that would be part of their advertising literature it would be we also have savings so that if there's a, a a famine you know we can feed you for x number of years yeah 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 yeah
0: now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor icoin technology icoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet it looks like a mini iphone a little touch screen and camera on it uh, the device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touchscreen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, it's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet.
1: So I'm going to, so this myth stuff, I'm going to bring it back to the narrative. You know, again, this, the story of Twilight of Gold is really the, the story of the pound sterling and how Sterling lost global reserve status um, slowly. It didn't happen overnight, but it happened slowly over the course of World War One, the twenties, the thirties, and then into the forties. And one major event in them losing it was how they revalued the currency and. That is myth number one. Um, Winston Churchill was chancellor of the Exchequer in 25. Um, that was like the beginning of his rehabilitation of his political career that led to where he ended up in World War II. But he has, it was sort of wandering in the political wilderness, trying to rehabilitate his career, and then he got appointed um, as Chancellor of the Exchequer by his one of his mentors, which is a big appointment, and um, Montague Norman, who we've talked about him before in the series, but he was the head of the English Central Bank, and he very much wanted the, to return to gold standard. Wanted England to return to a gold standard. And one of the most publicly effective people against the gold standard was John Maynard Keynes, who did not think they should return to gold. But Montague Norman and Benjamin Strong were for it. Strong was the president of the the New York Fed, of the... our central bank, of the United States. So, this is just to, to—we've already talked about a little bit, but to set the stage, um, the British pound had been trading free-floating after World War World War One, and they had actually England actually paid the price for World War One and entered deflation to try to get their currency back up. They were like one of the few nations that actually did the responsible thing. And it wasn't like necessarily out of a sense of um, altruism. England really did need their currency to retain its prior value. And that's because um, I'm going to go through, I always want to skip to the end, but I kind of have to go through my notes to sort of tell the story. by the way, listen to chapter 12 of Lords of Finance, and you'll hear Norman and um, Strong in their correspondence talking about how they have this desire, this personal desire to reinstate the gold standard. And you get the sense that it comes from their own personal desire to control prices. And I I mean, literally two men have a desire to control the price of money, the price of gold and the price of everything for the entire developed world. And I think I would give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they probably saw it as beneficial for humanity. Mm -hmm. But if you pull away from it, what I see is two single humans desiring to affect the price of everything for everyone and you just, you you can't see that as anything but self-serving because they're the ones who would have the power to do it. They aren't arguing for someone else to have the power. They're arguing and scheming for themselves to do it. In fact, it was so important for Strong that he lined up, he got a $200 million line of credit from the New York Fed and then he got $200 million from JP Morgan, maybe $300 million. Anyways, he sent, Norman came to New York and he sent Norman back to England saying, look, we have, you have $500 million of extra credit in case England needs it, use it in your back pocket. But I'm gonna put a a proviso on this loan. This loan is only good so long as Montague Norman is governor of the Bank of England. Like he personally, he put a key man clause in this credit so that only Norman could use it. So it was very much about the relationship between these two men and how they saw each other as, as like allies. I think it's important to reinforce how much the gold standard became a function of human politics. And going back on the gold standard, even in this moment, was already infused with human relations Mm -hmm. and how humans wanted control. And their tools that they used to get what they wanted were the mythologies they created around the gold standard and what it meant to eat to themselves and to each country. And, I, and I, I, again, every time I say this, I keep going back to software and how the thing I took away from software is that language is a tool that can be exploited for control. That's the story of language. And the computer language is just the same thing as English language. It is a language, is a tool that can be exploited to give control to an abstract group of people who have the keys. Um, So I wanna keep reinforcing how the mythologies were created and perpetuated. Mm -hmm. Um, When Churchill, when, when Norman got back to England, Churchill was pretty still unconvinced that the gold standard was the right thing to do. And he had to consider his own political future. And he knew that the establishment, the monetary establishment was behind it. And so if he wanted, it's just like, if he wanted a future in politics, was he willing to go out on a limb and defy the economic establishment to go with his gut? If he was wrong, would that preclude his own future as maybe, um, a, whatever he's you know prime minister whatever he wanted to be and so the political calculation to go back on gold rested entirely that was his decision and his decision was one of political calculation again he was looking at his own he was looking he was taking a look back at his own past mythology should he make a different decision and decided that he didn't know quite enough about this to go against orthodoxy and so even though he had it he had an instinct against it he went back on gold and and it, and again and it wasn't just his own political expediency but england like i said england did deflate their economy after the war and by 1925 prices were about cut in half and the pound was 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 becoming more and more value more valuable it was at its low it was trading at like $3.20 And then it was up to 430. But they still had about 1.2 million unemployed. And that was above 10%, which is a pretty high number. So the prudent orthodox approach, England increasing the value of their currency and trying to cut their deficits. And, you know, Churchill gave a, a big speech the day that they announced they're going back on gold and talked about how they had a surplus in the budget. They were all very proud of that. And just by contrast, you had France which had the highest ratio of casualties in World War I of any country, but like ratio to population, the highest ratio of casualties after, after Serbia. Serbia was the highest. They were second. They had been invaded. Their infrastructure was, deployed, was destroyed. France, they inflated their currency to get out of their problem. They took the easy way, and it also cheapened their exports. And yeah, their government, the French government, was on the verge of bankruptcy, but their economy was doing well in nominal terms and their unemployment was really low. And so this gets back to what we talked about in like episodes like two of the series, which is that there's a game theory against, once someone introduces money printing, game theory works against anyone who tries to do the responsible thing. Because by comparison, you're com- if your competitors are printing money, they're going to be reaping the benefits of it in the short term. And if you're not, it's going to become a political liability for you. So after all the self-inflicted pain that England went through to restore the pound to the pre-war level of 46, it was still stuck at this like barrier of 10%, couldn't get up that last 10 to 20%. It was still trading at like 440. And they were trying to depress prices even further. Just that last 10%, and the debate then, and, and this brings us to today, is what's that last bit of unemployment that we require to bring the currency back into line with where we think it should be? To, again, today the debate is, should inflation be 2% or 3%? Even though it's a different framing where they're talking about where the central bank is talking about their inflation target they are talking about the value of the currency and they're talking about how much pain or or unemployment they need to engineer in order to bring the currency back and this is exactly the same argument they were having so while it seems like a really abstract arcane was it 486 or 440 it was no less abstract to them than is 2 or 5 or 3% the proper inflation target for the central bank now. And again, they're trying to create an artificial peg, just like we're trying to create one of these, all these numbers are pegged to 2% or 3%. And if you go back to Groman's law, all pegs break. I think it's just instructive to go through the politics of what they're they going through then, and then to see how history completely repeats itself. And there's the last reason why. And stop me because I know I'm going on and on here. That was good. If if you go to this is uh, outlined on page 87 of Twilight of Gold. But from 1854 to 1914, Britain had a favorable balance of trade in total. However, from 1854 to 1914, the balance of merchandise trade was negative, which means that their imbalance was made up for by income from non-merchandise industries like shipping, warehousing, insurance and banking. And so England's success as an uh, their, their economic viability and in a, especially in a hard body regime was totally dependent on London's position as the international center of finance. And so restoring the value of sterling was critical after the war to Britain surviving as an ap- economic powerhouse, and again, put this in the context of essentially myth making to say to to ensure confidence in the currency. Britain had to say no, it's just as strong as it was before the war. So you can trust us, so that we can continue to balance our trade by these invisible industries like banking and insurance. The numbers created the myth, and. Again, to bring it forward 100 years, what I'm talking about in England was they had a financialized economy. Does that ring a bell? Because it should, because that's what we have in the United States. And that's why these numbers create the mythology which create the power. So restoring gold at 486 US was totally critical for their reputation as the center of the world settlement system. And it couldn't function if there wasn't confidence in it. It's just a—it's a glaring similarity to where we are today.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of things that jump out to me here. One, just earlier, you talked about the key man risk, right? Mm-hmm. The key man clause. clause. Yeah, the key man clause. Um, we often talk about key man risk inside of. When you're, when you're buying and selling businesses, you know, investment banking, one of they often talk about key man risk where it's like, okay, this guy or this guy's group of people, whatever, they're so important to the business that if we lose them, the valuation of the business would suffer, you know, significantly. And so this whole idea of really any centrally planned or fiat monetary system that almost has inherent key man risk because you have so much power concentrated in so few hands mm-hmm. that that's just a, a a weakness of the system like an inherent weakness whereas you look at something like gold or bitcoin broadly they don't suffer any key man risk right it doesn't matter who comes into power goes out of power for gold uh, right in terms of it being a good money or bitcoin in terms of it being a good money so there's I guess what I'm trying to say, there's just a, uh, a system, a gold system or a Bitcoin system is just inherently more robust and that it does not suffer from these key man risk. And then yep. the other the other uh, point you made here about the, the numbers you, being used to drive the myth-making or the narrative. I had a um, a mentor that I worked with for a while when I was doing CFO work and he had this phrase that he who controls the model controls the narrative. So like whoever's presenting wow. at a board meeting, let's say the numbers, we like to think that numbers are very objective and they don't lie, but you can selectively present different aspects and different numbers to support any narrative, right? So there's always this subjectivity that comes with the comes through the presenter, let's say, that they can emphasize and de-emphasize different aspects of the business um based on what numbers and models they they choose to present
1: well it's like you know this brings us this this is what cpi is mm-hmm. you know cpi is a narrative and we're going through all kinds of crazy maneuvers as a society and as an economy around this cpi model and i'm not i actually don't believe there's no there's no value in cpi there is value some value in it but I think there's a massive tug of war in what CPI means. And when you're in a world where 4.86 is success and 4.4 is failure, and I mean that literally, then you're in a world where CPI might give you some, some really valuable broad information, but the battle is being fought over 2.5 versus 2.7. You know, these small being able to claim victory over these small changes in a number really, really true, truly do give he who holds the model what 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 did you say? He who controls the model controls the narrative. Yeah. We're this is why I think this story of the repricing of the British currency is like the perfect analogy. As if we need an analogy. Like it's so plain today. We don't need analogies but it is a good analogy we're talking about
0: the gold standard to, to that point too. cpi is a narrative right yeah the narrative itself is also tweet right the the 1980s calculation of cpi does not equal the 1990s does not equal today's right so that right. that metric is always being changed or rigged re-rigged to suit uh support of whatever the, the narrative is, or I guess that model, sorry, I should say is being re-rigged to support the narrative. And on the flip side of that unemployment too, right? They're trying to manage CPI, uh, within the, the boundaries of a, a target unemployment rate, that's a narrative too, or that's a model, right? Because unemployment has all this wiggle room, right? Yes. When, like if they have been out of the labor force for six months, are they still part of unemployment or are they out of the not, are they shifted out of that metric into the, uh, you know, outside the labor force or not seeking a job, whatever the term they use. So there's all this arbitrariness, I guess, inside these numbers that are represented to be objective, right? Like CPI is a subjective number, unemployment is a subjective number, but that obfuscates the truth that those metrics themselves are changing over time to suit the
1: narrative that's being pushed. And the narrative, by the way, in case anyone who's listening doesn't know this, we should orient people on what the the narrative is right now. And this is something that I actually myself forget. And when someone reminded me of it, and I was really grateful, and I want to pass it along. The narrative that that Powell is trying to create now is, you know, people ask Powell, you know, like, at press conference, they'll say, so you're trying to bring down prices, and he'll stop a reporter and say, I'm not trying to bring down prices. I'm trying to slow the rate of change and what that means is, in order for the central bank to be successful, prices must continue going up from here at a rate of 2 or 3% a year. He is not, no one's trying to bring prices down. This is the new price level, and they should continue to go up from here. They just want, he wants them to go up less fast. So if anyone has it in the back of their mind that the central bank is trying to bring prices down from here, they're not
0: correct because that would crack the debt structure that fiat creates right you need you need to erode debt burdens real debt burdens over time if you had actual price deflation that would make the debt burden crushing
1: that would be global catastrophe exactly and that is what's so impossible about what the central bank is set out to do if you were to say that like here's what the central bank is trying to do And there's a reasonable possibility of success. That would be one thing. But I don't think there's a reasonable possibility of success in the long run. It's just short term after short term benefit. I think Bitcoin is built towards a long term reasonable possibility of success and a long term reasonable possibility, not guaranteed, of being able to function independent of the state. And those two things are enough for me.
0: Yeah, it's like putting more and more duct tape on the house of cards. You're just trying to kick the can down the road as much as you can. But ultimately, the debt load becomes so large, as it is today. What are we, 350% global debt to GDP? That's effectively unserviceable, right? Absent some major productivity boom, which maybe we get through AI or whatever else. But under current conditions of productivity, it's just not even
1: serviceable. But even the productivity boom, and I'm going to go through like some super hardcore numbers on why even a productivity boom doesn't get you out of the doghouse without massive inflation. Exactly, and that's essentially what you know we'll pull from Rothbard. But he delineates in excruciating detail how the productivity boom of the 20s simply allowed a massive inflation. That's all it did. I mean, that's not all it did. It increased our standard of living and it made things cheaper, but not cheaper enough because inflation was backfilling in all this extra productivity. Mm -hmm. So productivity on its own, per the Jeff Booth thesis, productivity on its own only makes things cheaper and that only makes the central bank's job harder. Yes. But it does give them some wiggle room to print.
0: Yes. Yes. There's more economic surplus being created that they can harvest through money printing. Yes. Yes. Right. So, so prices I'm general just, price level should have gone down five percent, but we're targeting two percent inflation. That means they harvested the five percent productivity increase that would have been accretive to savers in the form of uh purchasing power increase of savings, but they also stole an additional two percent from you. So it's a net seven percent.
1: Right. And that's why the price stability mandate is actually camouflage for money yes. prints. Yes, for theft. Exactly. Yeah. Uh,
0: The last thing Um, that jumped out at me was this double-edged sword of global reserve currency status, because it gives you the on the good side. If you're the global reserve currency, you can export inflation, right? Which the U.S. does today, and presumably London was doing at this time. But it also eviscerates your industrial economy, right? It financializes Mm -hmm. you a lot. Mm -hmm. And same thing that you know they're saying that London was suffering from here, we the U.S. suffers from today. So. It's not even, although it might seem like the the ultimate prize to have the global reserve currency status as a nation, it's actually not healthy for you from an industrial
1: economic standpoint. Um, I have trouble sleeping a lot. And um, I have taken it as like, I know that choosing to overvalue your currency and financialize your economy hollows out your industrial base but I cannot keep it in my mind. I can't keep it in RAM as to what the chain of events is. Like to this day, this is something I've thought about a lot. And when I'm laying there at night and I can't fall asleep, I go back to this and I go, explain to your, I have to, I have to, it's like I've, it's like I'm in Momento and I have to re-figure out something I already knew. And I lay there and I will have to recalculate why does financializing your economy hollow out your industrial base and send jobs overseas. I just have to like go through it again and again. And even I can't, I'm not going to do it now because it like takes me 10 minutes and it also puts me to sleep.
0: Mm. (laughs) Great movie by the way, Uh, Memento.
1: um, So I'm going to jump. I'm at the bottom of seven now. And and I want to point out something really curious that I wasn't really able to work out. But like, so I spend months reading about restabilizing the British currency at $4.86 so that they could go on the gold standard, and nowhere in the literature. And I mean, there's books, there's articles. I've got the free JSTOR subscription so I can read all the JSTOR articles. No one talks about the price of pounds in gold. I thought that was so. I'm, I'm, I have no answer to this. I mean, I have a speculation, but like I had to calculate for myself what the British price of gold was because no one mentions it. They only talk about the British price of dollars. And that is so weird to me that it wasn't being expressed that way at the time or or was it being expressed that way at the time? But now since it's a hundred years later and the accumulated literature, I mean, I'm reading stuff that was written in the forties and fifties. Where are they talking about price of the pound in dollars and to me it is just evidence of the fact that the world had already shifted what its denominator was and that the dollar had already won that's my guess and that they were that was an expression of it isn't that weird yeah I would well so there's
0: a book called gold wars by Ferdinand Lips. And he makes pretty strong arguments that there were a lot of I don't, I, campaigns, psyops, propaganda waged against gold during this time, right? Actually, across this time for many decades. Um, I guess this is like a carryover from Keynes' proclamation that gold was a barbarous relic, right? They were trying to mm-hmm. say that gold was hamstringing economies and our ability to grow and all of these things. And so I wonder if by just denominating the prices of currencies and other currencies and not in gold, you're sort of shifting people's attention away from gold, right? The role that it's playing as like a sound savings. Um, And it reminds me to that line, that very important line from the book Propaganda that you can't tell people what to think, but you can tell people what to think about. So if you just only present these frames of reference like currencies in terms of other currencies rather than in terms of gold, then you get them thinking in terms of currencies, right? So it's like um, you're, you're kind of obfuscating the the truth really, right, that hey, you're depreciating, all of these things are depreciating against gold. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how these currencies are trading against one another only. Right. So you're shifting people's right. attention away from gold as a maybe a means of like mitigating its mitigating the perception of gold as a, a sound monetary instrument.
1: Yeah, try try explaining the DXY to someone who's like not in finance. Exactly. And they're like, what yeah. so you have to take an arbitrary number, one oh two. Yeah. And what does that mean? Well it does it does it mean the dollar can buy more? No. It oh. doesn't mean that. it <laughs> It's it's an a it's an arbitrary number you might it might as well see what if the DXY was on a different scale and traditionally it hovered right around five thousand seven hundred and fourteen you know like it's just it's just a random number that the dollar hovers around on this random scale it's it's exactly what you're talking about
0: yeah you're expressing the arbitrary value of a
1: dollar or
0: let's say the price of a dollar I guess in terms of the arbitrary units of other currencies. Yep. So, so it's an abstraction in terms of an abstraction, whereas if you just denominated it in gold, you'd have some anchor into an objective reality.
1: Yeah, and it was, it was these like technocratic solutions to purchasing power parities, all of which emerged in the 20s as a way to try and coordinate the global economy through more language and regulation. Mm-hmm. And this like, you know, our currency versus yours. I mean, part partially the US did stay on a gold standard during the war. And so the dollar when when they were talking about the pound at 46 a dollar, they were by proxy talking about gold at that time. Mm-hmm. Gold still was at twenty dollars and sixty seven cents an ounce. And so that might be partially a reason.
0: And but, but again, I would argue the U.S. was on a partial gold standard, right? Because this is post-1933 Executive Order 6102. So private ownership and trade in gold was largely interfered with, to say the least.
1: Well, I'm talking about in 25. Oh, in 25, sorry.
0: Yes, correct. Still on a gold standard at that
1: time. Um, And in 17, this is just a figure, in 17, the U.S., ratio of gold to um fed note and deposit liabilities 84 percent. so like we were highly solvent at that point in time we were the ones to compete with in terms of monetary confidence Mm -hmm.
0: now i'd like to tell you about our sponsor wasabi wallet with wasabi wallet you can receive send and store bitcoin privately in wasabi wallet your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay Server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay Server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to
1: download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. Um, anyway, here we are at myth number one, um, and I'll just read from the book. Um, Pally says, during the Great Depression and ever since, a myth took hold of the economist's imagination. The act of 1925, Returning to gold at the pre-war value achieved the status of a deus ex machina that not only kept as many as 1.2 million British unemployed throughout the rest of the 1920s, but somehow brought about the subsequent downfall of the gold standard. In the hearings of the Macmillan Committee in 1931, a union leader, Ernest Blevin blamed the return to parity for the general strike of 1926. Reginald McKenna argued that it forced that it forced bitcoin into a five-year-long deflation of the money supply forced britain. in reality pardon
0: britain into a five-year you said bitcoin
1: oh <laughs> i see a b and i just say bitcoin uh thank you yeah. it forced britain into a five-year-long deflation of the money supply in reality the tremendous growth of the money supply in 1914 to 1919 including time and saving deposits had left behind a volume of pent-up purchasing power and that was the major disturbing element in Britain's financial picture and that money supply rose further during the second half of the 20s let's look at this look more closely at this viewpoint financially devaluation would not have brought relief either to the exchequer or to the capital account of the payments balance the 850 million war debt to the united states plus 400 million uh, these are in pounds. To other nations, had been contracted largely in dollars. What what he's saying is is he's he's explaining why devaluing the currency in 10, ten to twenty percent wouldn't have helped them at all. And the reason is is they accumulated uh, 1.2 million pounds of debt worth of debt, but it was the the debt was denominated in dollars. So if they devalued their currency. It would only make their debt harder to pay. And so this is why this echoes the problem we have in the world right now, which is, is all these countries race through their own QE and devalue their currencies, their debts, largely denominating dollars, we're having the same problem, those become unpayable. And this is like, you know, this is where Brent Johnson's milkshake theory comes into play. That this dollar super spike will in fact be fueled by inflations happening around the world, mm-hmm. but this, um, so this this next passage presents like another part of the conundrum that we face in the U.S. today. But again, it's felt by England in the 19, 1925. On the so so, what I just explained was why their why devaluing wouldn't help them from ah uh, paying off their external debts, but now there's an there's an internal portion to this. On the other hand. By sterling devaluation, a lightening burden of the 1.825 million British credits to allied countries, I said it was 1.2 million to the US, this is to all all allied countries in total is 1.8 million pounds. By sterling devaluation, lightening the burden of the 1.825 million British credits to allied countries would have relieved the debtors. So these are credits that Britain, Britain borrowed from the United States, but they loaned to other people. So if they devalue their currency, they have trouble paying their debts back. And if they devalue their currency, then people paying them back have get off easy. Yep. So it it didn't help them on either side. Um uh, okay, so I that's a paragraph where I explain exactly what I just said. And now he moves on to their internal debt, which is the England debt that England owed itself. The net dead weight of the enormous internal debt would in no way have been lightened by a sterling devaluation unless it had led to a fresh inflation of wages and prices. The internal debt had skyrocketed from £650 million early in 1914 to £6,587 6.5 billion, the end of 1923, a tenfold increase, exactly. The annual servicing cost alone amounted to almost 50% of the total budgetary revenues. So here we are at this, they're using... Maybe that's where I get it. Paly's is using the, the uh, interest cost in the numerator, income in the denominator, and they were at 50%, aka where we were in 85 and where I think we're headed now. Yep. If prices and wages had risen as a result of a devaluation, thus lightening the internal debt burden, which it would for us, this would have been offset by increases in production costs, which in turn would have negated any beneficial impact on the devaluation of unemployment in the export industries, as Britain's refusal to return to the old parity would surely not have enhanced the international marketability of British bonds. So to recap, he's saying that, let's say it did make their debt to themselves payable, just like ours. They wouldn't make their they would make things more expensive for them and re- they would make all of their input costs, their, their production industrial input costs would go up in real terms, which wouldn't make their products any more profitable. And lastly, the damage it would do to the reputation of the British currency and the British debt would also hurt their ability to, to supplement their negative merchandise balance of trade. So all in all the idea that they had an option to devalue their currency and to continue their position in the world is I think it's successfully busted busted that idea. But you think about what's the value of this myth and who stood to gain from the idea that returning to gold at 486 dollars pounds to dollar was was responsible for the financial calamities to come and there, there were, I'm going to read even more from the book. And this is a, this is a, by the way, this is a super long chapter. And this is one of the rare chapters in a book that's at times hard to follow because there's so many numbers and figures. This is like the one place where he really, A, he gets emotional and uses an exclamation point like that. <laughs> Pallion using an exclamation point is basically like him sobbing openly on the page <laughs> <laughs> and he talks about people and their feelings and their politics it's one of the rare places where the writing becomes um uh emotional it's not like it's Thoreau all of a sudden but it's something different and so i'm gonna i, I had planned to read this so i'm gonna read it if i get bored or if it seems dumb i'll stop this is page 101, and the section is called Social Justice versus Gold. Anything you want to say before I launch into this?
0: No, I think I think this is good stuff. I think
1: I think a good passage here too. So I think we should recall. Okay. Britain's gold standard that emerged in full armor by 1926 had been shaped to the pre-1914 pattern. In form, it was the identical institution, but with quote, embellishments which revolutionized it. In any case, the spirit was not the same. One is reminded of Alexis de Tocqueville's dictum that the operation of institution depends on the minds of men who run them rather than on the laws by which they are regulated. Bit 300. I would to God that I believed more in the omnipotence of institutions! Exclamation point. I would have higher hopes for our future because chance could, could on some given day then allow us to fall upon the precious piece of paper that would contain the prescription. But alas, it is not so. And I'm thoroughly convinced that political societies are not what their laws make them, but what they are prepared in advance to be by the feelings, the beliefs, the ideas, the habits of heart and mind of the men who compose them and what native disposition and education, think about the aerospace dude, made these men to be. Men's attitudes toward the institution of of the gold standard had changed. The war and its aftermath had undermined the belief in the automatic and beneficial self-regulation of the free market system, of which the gold standard and its mechanism were an essential ingredient. It came increasingly under the fire of critics. Was it really necessary, they argued, to strangulate a business upturn in order to protect the gold reserve and the currency convertibility? Likewise, the ubiquitous vested interests in cheap money, price inflation, and fluctuating exchange rates contributed their share to circumvent the protection of creditors' and savers' rights, a protection which the gold standard implied. Politically, The most significant factor was the resistance of organized labor to the alleged or real impact of the monetary mechanism, the gold standard, on wages and employment. In Britain, the restored gold standard's future was imperiled from the outset, not by any shortage of gold, but by a surplus of coal and cotton yarn. The showdown came on the heels of the sterling stabilization Coal mining was the weakest sector. Previous to the war, it had been a mainstay of Great Britain's prosperity, providing over one million men with a livelihood. Presently, it became one of the weakest spots in her industrial armor. During and immediately after the war, production had expanded to meet a swollen demand with the United Kingdom as the Allies and Neutrals' chief source of supply. But precious little had been done to improve either the equipment or the financial structure. And by 1925, continental competition in Europe was making itself felt to the full. The French and Belgian mines had been rehabilitated. The coal fields of the Ruhr and Upper Silesia were back in operation. They were partly modernized, their unit costs were reduced, and they were operated at relatively low wages. British coal, to a large extent, was non-competitive. The Samuel Commission presented in March 1926 a rational solution. A substantial number of miners should move to other areas where employment opportunities were available. Miners, this is like miners being told to uh, learn to code. The miners refused to budge, except for a relatively small fringe of newcomers who had been brought in from the outside during the wartime coal boom. The miners indignantly rejected any suggestion of an increase in working hours or of a moderate cut in wages that had been inflated during the war and boosted further under the first MacDonald regime in 1924. And the owners of the coal mines, embittered through incessant labor conflicts, rejected the council to become more efficient by introducing modern techniques and merging small collieries. The recalcitrant miners went on strike and were locked out. The upshot was the short and abortive general strike of 1926, resulting in slightly lower wages and massive unemployment in the coal fields, an unprecedented defeat for Britain's organized labor. Limited as the crisis was, it served well the anti-gold standard objectives of distinguished economists like D.H. Henderson, Sir, Sir Josiah Stamp, and company. But they did not form public opinion, not even the polemics and pamphleteering of John Maynard Keynes could do that. He did succeed, however... In convincing the powerful press magnate Lord Beaverbrook that the unfortunate miners were paying for a conspiracy between Governor Montague Norman and Chancellor Winston Churchill to preserve the profits of the international bankers rather than enhance the welfare of the British workingmen. This appeal to mob instincts and nationalistic sentiment spread over the six million circulation of the Daily Mail and related papers, could not fail to impress a public that knew little and cared less about such esoteric matters as monetary policy, but people willing to lend ear to hair-raising stories about financial conspiracies against the national welfare, but people willingly lent their ear, etc. Intellectual sponsorship by an illustrious Cambridge Don added to the story's possibility. Quote, hard money had become identified as, as unemployment persisted, with high interest rates and a modernized version of economic tyranny. The heat was on the politicians and they in turn put pressure on the Bank of England, weakening in effect its defensive posture on the foreign exchange markets. It was almost a foregone conclusion, although not perceived until years later, that if sterling should come under fire in a crisis, the psychological defenses against mass sentiments might well prove insufficient to withstand the public onslaught. And the crisis did come, and too soon. Montague Norman, the architect of the return to gold, although aware... Sorry, what? What? Just there it's very verbose, but what he's talking about here is this narrative spread through the press weakened the mythology of the gold standard. And he talks about if sterling should come under fire in a crisis, the psychological defenses against mass sentiments might well prove insufficient to withstand political onslaught. He's essentially talking about there could be a run on the bank. Or that there isn't enough popular belief in the myth of the value of convertibility to withstand people putting pressure on their congressmen or whatever they're called in England to undo the gold standard, which they ended up doing. Anyways, the crisis did come and too soon. Montague Norman, the architect of the return to gold, although aware of the difficulties and pains of adjustment, had presupposed a 20 year or similar period of reasonable peace and prosperity. The assumption was shared by many experts of the mid-1920s, including Benjamin Strong, who enthusiastically supported the British governor's philosophy and Sterling's return to gold. Why, indeed, should British industry, one can read between the lines of Norman's diary, not be able and willing either to improve the old apparatus or, wherever improvement might pre- pre- be useless, scrap it and turn to radically new lines? Why should labor not move from one occupation or location to another, as it had time and again over the centuries. Why would the mechanism of the gold standard be less effective in the future than it had been in the past, enforcing whatever correction was necessary in order to bring the balance of payments into equilibrium and keep it there? All of this was perfectly rational, except these bankers didn't recognize the significant changes, economic and political, affecting the functioning of the monetary system that had taken place. When, in the very center of the international credit system, labor refused to tolerate even minor or temporary hardships, an obsolete business was determined to hold its own, preferably at the treasury's and consumer expense, both supported by major segments of public opinion, the message should have been clear that one could no longer play the gold standard game by classical rules. The welfare state's determination to bypass the, automatiz- the ot- automatism resulted in making the gold standard nearly unworkable. In the century before 1914, the gold standard survived and flourished because it had never been exposed to such chronic strains as now appeared in the interwar era. The men... I'm going to take a drink of water once again. The men primarily responsible for Sterling's return to the old parody were not reactionaries and sensitive to the sufferings of their fellow men, nor did they consider unemployment an incurable disease, as one of Norman's biographer Andrew Boyle has insinuated. They believed in progress and saw competition as its driving force and not in preserving frozen vested interests by fiscal tinkering, aka subsidies, or by cheap money at home and foreign exchange dumping abroad. Uh, everyone's brains should be burning with like, oh my God, is he talking about present day? Okay, going back to the passage. Thinking in terms of sustainable wealth creation, they rejected policies. This is the the bankers. He's talking about the bankers who wanted the gold standard. Thinking in terms of sustainable wealth creation, they rejected policies of a beggar your neighbor kind. Imbued with the outlook of 19th century economic liberalism, their attention was focused on people's real income and not nominal wages. Brought up in the spirit of classical Ideals free, enterprise, and individual responsibility. They were deeply suspicious of the direction in which the managed money advocates were driving, consciously or otherwise. Keynes, by contrast, had a clear vision of the political realities of the rising power of labor and of its mentality in a time of falling prices. He stated his position in the aggressive and in aggressive and ambiguous terms in. The Tribunus Populi in in, in the paper. Quote This is Keynes On the grounds of social justice, no case can be made for reducing wages of the miners. They are victims of the economic juggernaut. They represent in the flesh the fundamental adjustments engineered by the Treasury and the Bank of England to satisfy the impatience of the city fathers to bridge the moderate gap between $440 and $4.86 they and others to follow are preaching the moderate that moderate sacrifices are still necessary to ensure the stability of the gold standard and paley continues after this the slogan social justice has often served to disguise totalitarians from moscow to buenos aires it was used in the 1920s for many purposes legitimate or otherwise but outside France, scarcely, is, if ever, in favor of widows and orphans living on fixed pensions. Keynes never explained the meaning of this emotion-laden term. It comprised the policy objectives he had adopted, especially stable nominal wage rates. At the time, it had served well to create the impression that any reduction of nominal wage rates, even after they had spurted ahead of productivity, as in 1924, would force workers into a miserable condition. It is interesting in this context to note the judgment of a true social reformer, a woman of great scholarship and perspicacity, who is not motivated either by shallow sentimentality or political opportunism. Writes Beatrice Webb, there must be a scarcity of political constructive minds if J.M. Keynes seems such a treasure. I think his love marriage with the fascinating little Russian dancer has awakened his emotional sympathies with poverty and suffering, but he is contemptuous of common men, especially when gathered in herds. What Keynes might achieve is a big scheme of social engineering. He might even be called in to carry it out, but as an expert and not as a representative. Beatrice Webb, the passionate socialist, was equally critical of others who, like Keynes at the time, implied or asserted that the prevention of unemployment was an easy and rapid task instead of being a difficult and slow business, involving many complicated transactions and far more control over capitalist enterprise than anyone has yet worked out. Keynes had his own approach. It must be assumed that he was familiar with the unhealthy conditions prevailing in certain branches of British industry and probably aware of the fact that rectifications, however painful, were unavoidable. If he failed to mention them, it was for his own reasons." Temperamentally, exuberant and self reliant, he was a man of action, immediate action, with an extraordinary flair for voicing the common man's inarticulate longings and for the showmanship of paradox. Undeterred by classical tradition, traditions, which emphasized real wealth as against monetary concepts, he turned to the monetary, aka credit machinery, as being the natural lever to revamp the economic process with a minimum of resistance and complication. It was the one lever with the aid of which he thought the painful industrial readjustments could be avoided. I'm not done. The Norman Keynes controversy should not be over-dramatized, yet they were the chief protagonists in the conflict of the two schools of thought, the most distinguished representative of one side and the other. Norman stayed at the background, preferably hidden behind the high walls of Old Lady Threadneedle Street, whereas Keynes stood in the glare of maximum publicity. There was much written about this colorful intellectual struggle, but one essential point seems to have been overlooked. Their community of interest. Both understood from the outset, better than most of their contemporaries did, that the war had deprived Britain of her basic strength, her strong position as the international merchant and banker. The question was, what role should Britain play from now on? Keynes's idea was that the United Kingdom must must withdraw into itself as it were and try to make a good living by intensified and managed domestic expansion without any major adjustments, which might imply capital losses and unemployment, which is, by the way, it's what Trump ran on. The idea had a strong appeal to the masses. Norman's concept was different, as he saw it, the United Kingdom had been so weakened as to be no longer capable of standing on her own feet. International cooperation was his prescription for Britain. And to him, the restored gold standard was the vehicle, as well as the conditio sine qua non of international cooperation. Arguments about the desirable monetary system, however, were only a part of the controversy. Monetary ideologies obscured until 1930 the true bone of contention, the fiscal policy controversy. An annually balanced or overbalanced budget was the logical correlate to the return to gold. Solving the unemployment problem by fiscal techniques, unbalanced budgets, became Keynes's chief objective in the Depression. And by 1936, he was to provide the general theory to underpin fiscal policy in the following three decades and longer, the ideology of deficit financing. Okay, now I'm at the end. There's no better way i can't put it in better terms than what Pali writes in terms of how humans aware of the facts twisted the realities into a myth which served their careers that's there's no other way to put it and the, the ideology of deficit finance which we're living with 100 years later was was the outcome
0: Yeah, one thing that really jumped out to me there was uh, probably halfway through the passage, painting of the gold standard as a tool of political tyranny, right? They were demonizing hard money, which is such an inversion from reality, right? You're talking about a gold standard, right? Something that the supply of which is inherently apolitical, right, that politics can't really change the supply of gold. That's what makes it a good money in the first place. The fact that it's neutral in that sense, the supply issuance is neutral or agnostic, to politics or might say. Yet it's being represented here as the opposite, right? It's be- being used or wielded as a a means of, of tyrannization. And so it's amazing to me to what lengths people will go to deceive others and perhaps even themselves Mm-hmm. um to support these narratives right whatever then whatever or to support their career as you said um and, and yeah it's just just very interesting and then there's one uh one excerpt i'll reread from the excerpt you read yeah that sort of supports there's this.
1: so many there's so many points in this where i felt like stopping and being like we should talk about this yeah but, you know because it's so rich <laughs>
0: uh i think this was this is commentary on Keynes, it was, quote, undeterred by classical traditions which emphasized real wealth as against monetary concepts, he, as in Keynes, turned to the monetary slash credit machinery as being the natural lever to revamp the economic process with a minimum of resistance and complication. It was the one lever with the aid of which he thought the painful industrial readjustments could be avoided. So, and this is makes it this is very where it's insidious in a way because you can sell these nominal concepts to to the public much more easily, right? Keep your nominal wages the same or increase them. That no matter what what's happening to the purchasing power of the, the money that's being expressed in, that's much easier easier to sell to the public, right? You're, whereas if you say no, we need to go back to a hard money standard, and that may what may accompany that is a decrease in wages nominal wages, right? Even if if it's a net benefit to your real wages in the long run, because productivity is going to increase and all of that, that's a much more bitter pill for people to swallow. So it's like Keynes is able to use the narrative that is more popularly acceptable to insert his own ideologies, which gets us into the ideology of deficit financing, which is a self-deception we're still living with today, right? That the government can print money and produce losses ad infinitum. And, and this goes all the way and perhaps even culminates in things like modern monetary theory. So this strange, this is weird, I don't know. It's like the, we introduce a deception into the money, which will start to lie about the money or how it works. Again, maybe not even intentionally. Maybe we actually bought into this lie ourselves. Maybe even Keynes believed what he was espousing but it leads to um broader deception right you have to start lying to people about the nature of hard money and the nature of nominal wages et cetera. so it, it's a very interesting line right there's there's like this economic deception but it it leads to political deception and it leads to now again perhaps even self-deception so it's, it's just a strange
1: dynamic um I think it's also significant to point out that they were on the cusp of fixing the system, and vested interests intervened mm-hmm. to put them on a different path. And if you look at, um, you look at where we are today. Bringing it back to today, I don't, um, actually. Powell can't fix the system by by raising rates Um, because raising rates will bankrupt the U.S. government. And bankrupting the U.S. government isn't possible. So he's already fucked. But we're at a place where I don't think there's another move he can take. At every point in these inflations, there are people who step in and try to fix it and start making some progress. But progress eventually means someone having to accept uh, lower prices, either for labor or for goods. Right. Right. And that's when, as Palli says, uh, inflation creates allies of inflation. Exactly. And that's it. so here they were, trying to go back on the gold standard, trying to fix, uh, trying to escape the tyranny of credit expansion yeah. And like really compelling myth makers stepped in with a self-serving mythology telling miners that you shouldn't accept just because this is again why when you see people arguing over like small differences in numbers, he's saying it was a cabal of British bankers trying to bring the the pound back at 486 and that's why miners don't need to accept a uh, um a diminution in their pay he's he's creating this twisted narrative i mean look it's not it's it's even like he probably knew he could get that published just yeah. just the urge to get published is enough yeah. to make you write something that's publishable so that's yeah. probably why he wrote it cuz he knew it was clickbait <laughs> Yeah. That people would read it and here we are it worked and it just speaks to this whole thing like we keep talking about
0: numerator denominator but people are just easily deceived by nominal values right if, yes yes and i that's a really sticky problem because how are you going to get it's not like this is obvious or not it doesn't require some critical thinking right you get a to see through nominal values to real values takes a a little bit of proof of work, I guess you would say, to kind of sit with it and mull it over. And that's not things that require proof of work in that way aren't typically widely saleable from a, an ideological standpoint. It's much easier to just say, you know, forget what my opponent's saying. You deserve wages that are, you know, flat or increasing versus decreasing.
1: Yeah. yeah if you tell someone, look, your your wages are going to get cut in half. But bread is going to get cut in three quarters. Right. So you're actually wealthier in real terms. They're going to be like, already. what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. exactly. also love that Beatrice Webb, this like uh, social justice authority, basically implies, uh, implies that Keynes is like fucking someone and he's trying to impress her. <laughs> <laughs> like true. what's this reference to this ballerina? That, yeah. And like, hey, you know, I totally buy that. He He's trying to impress a lady and he's writing something that is going to get published. I mean, yeah. how much GDP has the world lost just because of BJ's? Yeah. <laughs> There's a number out oh. there. We don't know what it is. That
0: is so funny. <laughs> uh, well, on that, <laughs> very funny note I think that's a great place to put a button on it for the day and a point I mean, of uh, a point of ponder I'm, <laughs> yeah. global GDP has the world lost due to BJ's maybe BJ's are the I greatest enemy that. of global GDP <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Lester man yeah. this is awesome um, I'm really glad we're getting back into this it looks like we made it about halfway maybe not quite yeah. maybe a third right. of the way Third of the way? Yeah. Let's see. What, what page is this? Oh, is
1: he, yeah, about a third. We're still about, flying.
0: Yeah, about a third of the way. So, um, yeah, let's do this again soon. I, I want to keep up our momentum. Okay. Um, You're going out of town? You're traveling yeah. to- Well, I'm, I'm doing some traveling, but I will be available. And I will make okay. myself available for this because I, I really enjoy these conversations.
1: Um, here's what, I, here's what I predict. Yeah. My wife and two children have a cold- which means I'll get it next week. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's always the path. So we'll so, target two or three weeks from now. Yeah. But if I don't get it, I'll know, I'll know in the next week, if I don't get it, then I can, I can record center. So I'll, uh, um, where real quick, where can people find you on the internet? Um, I am on Twitter. I am at programmable TX. um, and uh that's pretty much it. I'm on Noster as well. You'll see my Noster. Um, I'm programmable TX on Noster as well. Um those are my only that's the only that's that's it. That's all that's all where I I mean I'm on medium as well, but I don't I haven't I think I'm gonna try and write this whole everything we've done as a long form series of articles. But the answer to your question was simple and I made it longer. I'm at programmable TX on Twitter. Perfect.
0: Okay, uh, I will be in touch and we will do this right. soon.
1: Okay, all right, man.
0: Thank you.